0: Find your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we begin a new study this evening, as we work through Paul's Thessalonian correspondence. And I I want to begin uh, by simply speaking about the gospel of grace and peace. The gospel of grace and peace. Now, there is but one gospel. There is but one message of good news that brings salvation. Yet we can express that in a variety of ways as we consider all of God's saving benefits that he's communicated to us through the gospel. And one of the ways in which we see it expressed in the early church very frequently is through these two words, grace and peace. Grace and peace we see in nearly every letter uh, that we find in the New Testament. Here as we open 1 Thessalonians, we see that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy all write to the church of the Thessalonians, And they send to them grace and peace because these two great words summarize for us the message of the gospel. Very simply put, because of what Jesus Christ came and did for our sake, we have peace with God. And this is a gracious gift of God. That is to say that God freely has given us a great gift that we did not deserve. A great gift that we did nothing to earn. Salvation through Jesus Christ. And because of what Christ did in going to the cross. And bearing the pain. The penalty of sin upon himself. Taking upon himself the wrath of God. We no longer have to fear. That we will one day face God's wrath. But rather we have peace with God. This is the great gift and glorious truth of the gospel that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because of what he accomplished for us on the cross and this evening as we begin looking at Thessalonians I want to reflect on that gospel and consider what happens when this gospel comes to town what happens when this gospel comes with saving power What happens when this gospel comes with the power of God as he works it in the lives of the people who hear it and receive it? That's what we're going to see in the weeks to come as we look at this early church in Thessalonica and look at Paul's correspondence with them. So if you found your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy But your faith in god has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you how you turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come father in heaven we pray O lord now that you would work mightily in our lives and in our hearts as we come to your word. That you would make this good news to come to us with that same kind of power just as it came to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. Lord, may we be a people who receive it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. May we be a people who receive it with endurance, with hope, with gratitude, with love, with steadfastness and faith. May we be such a people so that we might become an example to others, and in becoming an example, Lord, that you might be glorified in us as people see the way in which you have worked in our lives. We pray that you would work thus through your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to turn back to the book of Acts to consider how it was that the gospel came to the Thessalonians. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17, and I'll say a little bit about the context in which we find ourselves. It's not always extremely important to look at the book of Acts when we're reading a letter. Uh, What I mean is that um, the, the, the narratives in the book of Acts don't always provide the historical context for the letter itself. But in this case, Paul is going to make frequent reference to the events that we see recorded in Acts chapter 17. And so they will prove quite relevant for interpreting this letter to the Thessalonians. In some cases, the events that are narrated in the book of Acts may be quite distinct from the events that motivate Paul to write to an early church. But uh, in this case, it's the events that take place in the book of Acts and the events that soon followed after that uh, motivated Paul to write. And so it becomes uh, quite valuable for us to consider this. In Acts chapter 17, we find that Paul is in the midst of his second missionary journey. If you were to look at a map at Paul's first missionary journey and you imagine in your head, uh, in your mind, a, a map of uh, the na- modern country of Turkey, most of that first missionary journey was within uh, Turkey and what we call Mo- Syria nowadays. He went from Antioch and Syria to Antioch in uh, modern Turkey or what they called Asia and then back um, after having first gone through Cyprus. So it was a smaller circuit if you will but on the second missionary journey if you were to look at a map he went to many of the same places a second time that he visited on his first journey but he went on to um macedonia into the area that we would we would know today as macedonia and greece and there he preached the gospel and he planted some churches but he met with uh, some pretty stiff opposition in some places, he was beaten. In some places, he was thrown in prison, he and his associates. And Thessalonica was no different. He met with trials and difficulties, as we're going to see as I read in Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, what we see there in Acts chapter 17 is Paul's initial ministry in Thessalonica. He comes there and he preaches the gospel on three successive Sabbaths in the synagogue. That was his custom, to go into the synagogue and first preach to the Jews to seek to persuade his countrymen that Jesus is the Christ and that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, die, and rise. A few of those who were part of the synagogue believed, as well as some devout Greeks. This is a reference to those who were, uh, we might we sometimes see them called God-fearers. That they were people who, in some respect, believed in the God of Israel, believed in the Jewish scriptures, but they had not taken all of the steps necessary to uh, to, to be fully embraced as an Israelite, to become what's called a proselyte. And so they stood a bit at a distance, and yet they... Uh, They were people who feared God, and they uh, studied the scriptures. They were devout Greeks. That might have also included some uh, Jewish Greeks, people who had grown up in the Greek-speaking world and had a culture that was relatively Greek and yet were uh, Jews ethnically. And so there is a distinction between those who are uh, Jewish and those who are Greek in some sense. And some of each group believed the gospel when Paul and Silas preached it there in Thessalonica. But many of them rejected it, and they didn't stop at simply rejecting it. They actually stirred up a riot. They stirred up a crowd because they were so incensed at Paul's preaching. And they set the city in an uproar. And you see that line that they said in their accusation against Jason said they couldn't find paul and so they dragged jason the uh presumably the man who hosted this church in his own home they dragged him before the authorities and said that he has welcomed into his home these men who have what set the world upside down turned the world upside down causing an uproar and their particular charge was that these men were proclaiming that jesus is the christ that is that he is the davidic king he is lord And he is the one who will reign forever. And they were proclaiming that. And these Jewish men knew that all they had to say was, Paul is proclaiming a different king than Caesar. It would turn the authorities against him. Of course, they didn't find Paul. And Jason must have had some credibility with the city authorities. And so they simply took some money from him as a security. And shortly thereafter, they scurried Paul and Silas out of town to Berea. You see the kind of difficulty uh, that that Paul faced as he was preaching the gospel. And this was uh, rather tame, rather light by comparison to some of the other uh, challenges that he faced as he traveled around the world, the Roman world, preaching the gospel. There were times where where he was stoned. There were times, as I mentioned, where he was thrown into prison, beaten, left for dead. But it was, to be sure, discouraging for Paul. He would go on from there to Berea. He would meet with Jews who received the word well, who searched the scriptures to see if, it, if what he was saying was true. But again, some of the same men from Thessalonica would come and agitate a riot, agitate a crowd against him, and he would have to move on again. He would go to Athens where he would preach the gospel primarily to a pagan audience. A few would believe. But most people would say either, well, we'll hear you again about this, or they mocked him and laughed at him. Eventually, he would go on to Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 13, he would tell the Corinthians about that first visit, saying he came to them in much weakness, and the idea, we can imagine this idea, that he he came as one who was discouraged, one who was beaten down by gospel ministry, one who had been sharing the gospel again and again, and yet not seeming to see fruit not seeming to see much success rather seeming to face overwhelming opposition sure a few churches were planted a few people became christians but by and large he faced opposition everywhere he went and so he was discouraged but while he was in corinth while he was in corinth he received word from another associate of his timothy we'll see about this later in first thessalonians timothy brought him an encouraging report concerning the Thessalonians and that report lifted his spirits and motivated him to write what we read here in this letter wrote motivated him to write these words of encouragement the the report that he received from Timothy dealt with many of Paul's anxieties as we'll see in chapter 2 He worried for these Christians. He worried that they were not going to be able to persevere. That they would not endure in faith because of the hostility they faced in their own town. And yet they held fast. And he was encouraged. And so as he writes them and as he greets them with grace and peace. And as he speaks of them as the church of the Thessalonians who are in the Father. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives thanks to God. He praises God for what he has done in the lives of these believers. And so we begin to see what happens when the gospel comes with power. When the gospel came to the Thessalonians, it came with power. Because it came by the power of the triune God. I want you to look at all of the references to God the Father, to God the Son, and to God the Holy Spirit throughout this letter. Right there at the very beginning. In the greeting, he greets the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to praise God and thank God for what he has done in the Thessalonians' lives. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes that their faith is a real faith, an abiding faith, an enduring faith, because God is the one who worked faith in them. God is the one who wrought their faith. And so Paul rightly gives thanks to God for that work. He recognizes, likewise, that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 4 to say, we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. That is, God has elected elected them that he has made them his own in accordance with his decree before the foundation of the earth and how does he know that because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit it's the Holy Spirit who applied the gospel to their lives I said this morning in Sunday school and I'll say it again when we think of the work of the triune God we see that it is the son who accomplished our salvation It's the Spirit who applies our salvation by causing us to be born again, by working with power in us so that we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. It is a work of the triune God. It is a work that God works in His power. And that's why when the gospel comes with power, it can't be stopped. That's why the Thessalonians believed. That's why they endured. That's why their lives were characterized by work of faith. And labor of love and steadfastness of hope because the gospel came by the power of the triune God Now I want to say a little bit about this this is one of the very first letters perhaps the very first letter that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament it's possible that Galatians was written earlier but most scholars would suggest that first and second Thessalonians were the first that he wrote probably sometime around 50 to 52 AD very early in the history of the church Paul wrote these words and what we see in this letter is a very early testimony to the doctrine of the Trinity I think that's important to say because many in our day uh, many scholars many uh, ma- many people have argued and, and believed that this was a later innovation of the church that came about some a hun- few hundred years later That it was something that was developed long after the Apostles passed off the stage I don't know how they can think that and read first thessalonians at the same time when you see such frequent references to god the father and god the son and god the holy spirit i don't know how they can say that when we read the whole testimony of the new testament but certainly when we read paul's letters so infused with this language and he speaks with such a uh, familiarity as if to assume that all of the, his readers in thessalonica Already know this. They've just recently received the gospel. And he wasted no time in instructing them so that as he spoke about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, he didn't have to go into long explanations about this truth. That God is eternally one God who exists forever as three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's really the sum of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity in its most basic form. That's who God is. He is one. He always exists forever as three persons in perfect union. Father, the Son, the Spirit, perfectly equal, sharing fully each person in the divine nature. This is what we have believed as Christians for 2,000 years. Because it's what God revealed to us when He sent His Son and when He sent the Spirit. And it's what the apostles clearly believed in what they wrote Paul clearly believed that the gospel came to the Thessalonians that they had believed the gospel because the triune God had worked in their lives to cause them to receive it with faith in accordance with God's decree before creation his choice of them for salvation that's what Paul says We know that God has chosen you, brothers loved by God. We know that the gospel has come to you not only in word. You didn't just hear it. It came to you in power. It came to you by the Holy Spirit. And this to us is evidence that God has chosen you. It's an amazing thing to consider. What happens when the gospel comes to town? As we see here when the gospel came to Thessalonica. Now, when the gospel comes, it also comes in the midst of many trials, and it comes with transforming power. We see this as we continue to read and as we we reflect on what we've already read. Notice how Paul presents this evidence for his knowledge that God has chosen these Christians. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full." conviction that idea of full conviction is uh the idea of, uh, of fullness that, that it didn't just come in part but in the totality of it in all that God accomplishes when the gospel comes that's how it came to you and we're going to see the evidence of that what Paul ma- this claim that Paul makes that it came to them in power in the way in which it transformed them but also in the way in which they endured through great trials Paul's already alluded to their endurance by speaking of their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and speaking of their work of faith and their labor of love. Now he's going to speak a little bit in, in a little bit more detail about how they've demonstrated that the gospel, that they've in fact received the gospel, that the gospel is transforming them. He speaks first about his own example. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You know what we were like when we were with you. How, how you, you, we, we read that in Acts 17, how Paul persistently and patiently and fervently reasoned concerning Christ, how he held forth the gospel and proclaimed it with courage and with strength. We'll see more examples in the, later in this letter of the way in which Paul demonstrated himself to be a faithful workman demonstrated himself to be one who is willing to endure great hostility and many trials in order to see the gospel go forth. That's the kind of person that Paul was among them. That's what Silvanus was among them. That's what Timothy was as he also ministered to the Thessalonians in various ways. They proved to be that among the Thessalonians. But then he goes on to say, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, the reason why Paul's talking about the way he lived when he was with them is not to pat himself on the back or to toot his own horn, but he's also recognizing that God did his transforming work in them so that they became imitators of Paul, and not so that they just might be like Paul and act like Paul, but because Paul, and what he was doing, was himself imitating Christ. And So as they became imitators of Paul, they also became imitators of the Lord. We can be reminded of Paul's words in another place where he encouraged the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. This is the right thing to do. We all ought to be able to say this in our lives to those whom we might be discipling, to those to whom we're ministering. As we seek to imitate Christ as God works in us to transform us and to enable us to mature, we might say to someone else, are you trying to figure out how to live this Christian life? Watch me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Of course, this depends on the fact that we are in fact imitating Christ. And we learn this by imitating one another as we see uh, faithful disciples, faithful Christians who have been walking with Christ for many years. We learn by watching them. By following their example. That's how the Thessalonians learned the way of Christ. They learned it by watching Paul. And the specific way in which they became an imitator of Paul. And so an imitator of the Lord. Was by receiving the word in the midst of affliction. See I said the gospel comes in the midst of many trials. Even as it comes with transforming power. Look at that. What he says in in verse uh, uh, 8. For not only has the word. Excuse me. In verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They faced affliction, even as Paul faced affliction everywhere he went. They faced persecution, even as Paul faced persecution everywhere he went. We read about some of that in Acts chapter 17, Jason being a chief example. Jason himself was dragged before the rulers of his city. He was accused by a a riotous mob. He was challenged. And he was even uh, fined or had to pay some kind of security to resolve the situation. Yet he held fast. He was faithful. And those who were with him were faithful. It's a really remarkable thing to consider. Considering how these were recent converts these aren't christians who've been christians for a dozen years these aren't christians who have spent a decade training to go to some far off mission field these are people who have become christians within that year and they've been so changed and so transformed that when persecution came and they were confronted by it they held fast they continued in their labor of love they continued in their work of faith they continued the steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ it's a remarkable thing and yet when the gospel comes the power of of our God this is what happens it comes with transforming power so that people are transformed into imitators of Christ and a chief example of that transformation is in the endurance that God produces in in us when we face trials of various kinds and yet we hold fast our faith. With joy. With the joy that we, not that we produce, or not that we find in our own circumstances, but inexplicable joy. Amazing joy that we can't explain. Joy that is only explicable because of the work of the Spirit in us. That's what we see here. They received the word in the midst of affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Here we see another uh, result. Another uh, effect of the gospel coming with power. We see that when the gospel comes with power, it also comes through those to whom it has come. It comes through those who have been transformed by it as they endure through many trials. Paul tells the Thessalonians, you have become an example to everyone in Macedonia, in Achaia, That's their region there, and in in and near Greece. But not just there. He says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. Their faith has gone out into the whole wide world. Christians in every place have heard reports of it. Everywhere Paul goes, essentially what he's saying is, everywhere I go, people are talking about the Thessalonians. People are talking about how they receive the gospel. People are talking about how they've been changed. And so they become examples. That word there translated an example. It's a word that we see elsewhere uh, when we speak about types of Christ. The word is tupos. And in in some contexts, it it has to do with something like... uh, a press, a, a, an imprint or like a stamp, what you might use in a factory, uh, in an ancient factory where you would impress a, um, uh, something, forge something into a piece of metal or a piece of wood. And that stamp then would leave its own impression on the metal or on the wood or on whatever, whatever that thing is. We do that today in our own factories. What has happened here is that as the gospel has come, God has put his stamp on Thessalonians. So that they become that picture for others. Jesus Christ has put his stamp on them. So that they look like him. They act like him in particular ways in their context. Particularly through their endurance. Through their willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And there's a purpose for that. God has worked in them so that they might become an example to other believers to encourage their faith so that as the people of Corinth and the people of Philippi hear reports about the Thessalonian Christians, they will see their example and they will glorify God and they will learn to imitate them. So these men and women who became imitators of Paul and so became imitators of Christ are now an example that others are imitating too. It's an amazing thing to consider. The gospel has come to them and now it's going forth through them in an amazing way they received the word and now the word is going forth from them here we need to consider something about the gospel worthy life paul sometimes uses that language where for example he calls the philippians saying only let your life only let your life be worthy of the gospel elsewhere he'll say only live a life that is worthy of christ the idea is that our faith and our manner of life go together and they mutually support one another in our gospel witness in our testimony to christ the life that we live itself alone is not a sufficient testimony to the gospel but the words that we proclaim if they are not matched by a transformed life will ring hollow in the ears of those who hear it if we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and his transforming power and the grace that he shows us and yet our lives are characterized by all kinds of rebellion against God and unrepentant sin and uh, strife and hatred and cruelty to one another. And people will say, what kind of gospel is that that you preach? Look at your life. Look at what, the way in which you live. But if we are so transformed, where we are marked by love for one another and by a faithful commitment to the Word of God, to, to seek in so much as we are able to live a life that is consistent with God's Word, even though we fail and we struggle, but we seek to conform our lives to the teaching of Christ and the world turns against us and opposes us for it, and yet we hold fast and we endure, Others will see, and as they hear us proclaim the gospel, they will say, yeah, I think I believe it. They've really been changed. They really are different. How do they live that life? Not by our power. How do we embrace a life of following Christ in a culture that is hostile to such a life? Only by the power of God working in us. And so our lives become part of our testimony. Not the only part of our testimony, but a part that is important in complementing the words that we proclaim when we preach, when we speak to our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends in the street. Our life goes together with the gospel. And thanks be to God, when the gospel comes with power, it transforms us to enable us to endure through many trials. That's what happened with the Thessalonian Christians. That's what the Lord will also work in all who receive the gospel with faith. Now we see that the gospel has gone forth throughout the whole wide world. The gospel has, uh, has been pronounced to others because of the testimony of the Thessalonians. And then Paul gives us some information about those particular reports, telling us that they've reported concerning us, meaning uh, concerning Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We read about that reception in Acts 17. Jason and the others, they really put their neck on the line for Paul. They received his preaching. They received his teaching. They welcomed him into their homes. They greeted his preaching with joy. And when he was attacked, they did not say, well, enough of that. Turn him over. Throw him out there. Let him take the brunt of this. They put their own necks on the line. They helped Paul. They gave him an amazing reception. And that word that's the word that went forth to Corinth and Philippi and other places throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And here, as Paul describes that word going forth, he also speaks about what Uh, what the gospel has done in their lives, and what God has done through the gospel in their lives. He's changed them, as I mentioned earlier, that he's transformed them in their life, but he's also changed them in terms of their hope, and in terms of their affections, in terms of their belief and their faith. And that change can be summarized in two words, turning and waiting. There are people who turned and who Wait. They turned from idols, and they turned to the living and true God. These were people who were uh, brought up in a pagan society. Though some were Jews and some were Greeks, they lived in a largely pagan society. And When Paul preached the gospel, they turned from that idolatry. It's an amazing thing. It really, really is. You, you think in, in that culture, their families would have rejected them for turning like that their communities would have rejected them for having rejected the old ways, the traditional ways. We see this today in many cultures, in many places. When people come to Christ in places like uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran and uh, even some places in Mexico and, and elsewhere in this world, very often their families reject them, their communities reject them, and even if the government is not hostile to them, they face a great deal of hostility from those whom they most loved they're rejected by them that's what would have surely happened to the Thessalonians it's what certainly happened in their community and yet they turned anyway they turned because the idols that they had worshipped are no gods and they came to recognize that holding on to those things simply to preserve their relationships was not worth it wasn't worth it it wasn't worth uh, rejecting the one true and living God. And so they turned to the living and true God. It's an amazing testimony. And the people in the rest of the, uh, uh, the, rest of the region were hearing those reports. And, and they too were marveling at it. And so the Christian life is marked by that kind of turning. It's also marked by waiting. In turning to the living and true God... They are waiting for his son from heaven. They're waiting for Christ to return. They're waiting for the one whom God raised from the dead, who ascended to the Father, the one who reigns at his right hand and will surely come again, the one and the only one who is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. And so they faced the wrath of their countrymen, they faced the wrath of their community, they faced the wrath of their family, because they would rather face their wrath than face the wrath of Christ on the day of his coming. It's true that there is a judgment, and we do need to recognize this. Very often we, uh, we hear people say that there's really not much in the Bible about hell, to which I sometimes want to ask is how many times does the Bible need to say a thing for it to be true, and for us to believe it. It's there quite enough, it's there quite frequently in the teaching of Jesus But we can also expand our vision and see that it's actually very, very uh, frequent. Maybe not specifically hell all the time, but the reality of judgment, the reality of a wrath to come. There is a coming judgment. Every single person is a creature made by God and every single person has rebelled against his maker. Therefore, we all deserve God's righteous judgment. We all deserve God's righteous wrath. That's simply the reality of it. And yet, remember those early words with which Paul greeted the Thessalonians. Not grace to you and judgment. Grace to you and peace. Peace from God our Father. The one whose wrath we deserve, we won't get that wrath if we find ourselves... In Christ Jesus, if we take refuge in him by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we wait for him to come. We wait with patience and we wait with hope and we endure whatever comes our way. Why? Because he will surely come. And on that day when he comes, that day which God has fixed in his authority, he will judge the living and the dead and those who do not plead their own righteousness, but plead his righteousness, they will be delivered from the wrath to come. So what can we do? We can wait for him with hope, with faith. We can wait with him with a life that is marked by love, by faith, and by hope. Those three great virtues that Paul extols in 1 Corinthians 13, and those three great virtues with which he began recognizing here in the Thessalonians. This is the way that we wait. We don't wait by just sitting in our hands and doing nothing, but we wait by enduring whatever trials may come our way because we know that the gospel has come to us of the power of the triune God. Now, in closing, I, I do want to say one thing as I try to apply this to our own experience, our own life as Coloma Bible Church. When the gospel comes... It comes the same way every, in every place and for everyone. I don't mean that the specific experience and the context is identical. The Philippian church was different than the Thessalonian church. and uh, They received the gospel in some different ways. But I mean that it comes by the same power. And it comes with the same transforming results. The speed of that transformation may differ. And the exact uh, way in which God transforms us may, uh, may differ in degree. One church might have a different character, a different, um, different uh, focus in their life than another. And yet it comes by the same power and with that same general transformation as Christians everywhere across 2,000 years in every place are being conformed into the image of Christ. And yet there are things that we don't see everywhere when the gospel comes with power. What don't we see? What, very often we don't see in the book of Acts is that it doesn't lead people to gain personal prominence. It doesn't lead to to prosperity. The Thessalonians certainly did not uh, have the gospel come with power and the next day start making plans to build their uh, $5 million uh, church building. They didn't say, uh, wow, this place is growing so much we, we, uh, we need to plant a dozen other churches in our town. No, they experienced a great deal of hardship they didn't become prominent for the right reasons in Thessalonica they certainly became prominent for the right reasons in the broader region but not there in their community they didn't gain prosperity Jason lost a wad of cash to put up security for Paul you know what else it didn't do it didn't generate a spirit of rivalry or competition between them and the other churches the church of the Thessalonians didn't look over at Philippi down the road some ways and say, gee, uh, you know, their, their church is growing like gangbusters and uh, what can we do to get some of those people over here? They didn't even think in these terms. I, I'm, I'm importing or uh, some of our modern, uh, modern ideas back to the first century, but you see what I'm saying is they, they didn't think in these terms. They, they weren't conditioned to think like that, but so often in our culture, in modern United States culture, That's the way that we think. We want to see a uh, a megachurch. We want to see uh, thousands of people filling our halls. We want to see a large church budget and big building projects and softball fields on our property and all that kind of thing which uh, perhaps are soon going to become a thing of the past even in our country. And we compete with one another and that's not what the gospel works in our lives. It doesn't work strife and rivalry and competition, it works love and faith and hope, encouragement, and and, uh, it causes us and causes others to become an encouragement to one another so that other churches might see our church and we might see other churches as they grow and they persevere and they, uh, they live faithfully and hold forth the word and we rejoice and we're encouraged. Just as Paul was encouraged by the Thessalonians. And just as all these other believers in this region were encouraged by them. And it didn't happen because they had material prosperity in this life. That encouragement came because they fully invested all of their hope in the life to come. And so these things were results of the gospel coming to them. Real and lasting joy that was wrought by the Holy Spirit. Encouragement endurance real transformation from the inside out hope steadfastness love for one another others were helped paul benefited other churches benefited paul sylvanus and timothy were encouraged by what they saw happening and the thessalonians benefited as they continued to grow in christ amidst great Uh, conflict and difficulty and so it may be with us what will happen in our midst we can't say what exactly will become of our church will we face trials will we see a period of prosperity we don't know those things aren't uh, the, the exact context we might experience can be different some churches went through what we call in history the great awakening in the 1700s others went through what we call the second great awakening in the 1800s but in the years prior to that in both of those great awakenings there was not much gospel growth there were not many people coming to christ there was not much uh uh, not many conversions not many baptisms scheduled in the churches gospel certainly was going forth across the world but in places in the united states and england and elsewhere it didn't seem like much was happening But God was working. God was working in the churches that endured through those difficult times as they prayed and they hoped. And eventually he produced those great works that we call the Great Awakening. For them, those churches who experienced that great growth in number, and those that didn't, they still received the gospel in the same way, by the power of the triune God. And so it will be for us, whatever may come our way, whether many people might come to worship with us or many people might come to destroy us. We can trust in our Lord. That's how we know that the gospel has come to us with power. Not because so many people come through that door, but because God enables us to endure with faith and with hope and with love. So let us pray to that end and let us give thanks to our God. As he works in this way in our midst. Father in heaven, we do pray, O oh Lord, that you would do a great gospel work here, even as you have already begun it. And in our humanness, we would hope and we would love to see many people come to faith in this place, in our town, in this region. And if you would be pleased to use us for that end, and may we be faithful as servants to that end. But Lord, if it's your will that we should endure faithfully, Without seeing many people come to faith. And yet faithfully hold forth the gospel. In a culture that more and more opposes it. And we only pray O Lord. That you would make us faithful. And that you would give us that inexplicable joy. That you gave to the Thessalonians. That we might be a people. Who receive the gospel in much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. May we be a people who are transformed by it. May we be a people who exemplify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one whom you sent to deliver us from the wrath to come. May we be a people who set our hope fully and finally in this and this alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.